This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. How Russia invaded America, not with soldiers, but with a mind-bending web of money. This is the Beyond Politics podcast. We're on audio wherever you get your podcasts. We're on video on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I'm Matt Robeson. My co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, is off today. The 1984 movie Red Dawn was part of my childhood. We were still at the height of the Cold War, and it was an expression of a shared nightmare we all had, that at some point, Russia would just drop the gloves and invade. And who didn't picture themselves as Patrick Swayze packing off into the woods and leading a ragtag group of high schoolers to fight back? That little fantasy never played out. What we got instead came a lot later. It was a lot more subtle, and it was a lot more insidious. In 2015, there was a Russian invasion of a kind. Russia began to infiltrate our politics, and they didn't use tanks. They had a two-pronged approach. One was disinformation and influence, and that's what the Mueller investigation ended up being about. The other part was a howitzer of money that flowed from Russian oligarchs into political campaigns, almost exclusively Republicans, and not just Donald Trump's. That's a story that's only been partially told. Pieces of it have come up in various places, but only one person that we know of has provided a really comprehensive and accessible look at what was happening and who was doing it. And now some of those names that came up back in 2015 through 2016 have reemerged in 2023, especially in the wake of the arrest of Charles McGonigal, the senior FBI official who was supposed to be in charge of stopping this stuff and instead turned around and went to work for the Russians. And that spawns a whole bunch more questions about what is happening now. So I'd like to get into that with our outstanding guest today, the person who put together that great, most succinct and most insightful summary of all of this, Ruth May, Dr. May, is a business professor at the University of Dallas, now retired, and an expert on the economies of Russia and Ukraine. She wrote an article for the Dallas Morning News in 2018 called How Putin's Oligarchs Funneled Millions into GOP Campaigns. It's got an amazing visual graphic with it that, that we'll provide on YouTube. But Dr. May, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you. We've been doing a lot of work on the Russian invasion through our politics that kind of sprang up in this time period. And we've been putting these videos on YouTube. We've been putting the audio into the podcast and our seminal source of information time and time again, our little mini Bible on the topic really is this article you've written. And it's it's shocking both how insightful it is and how it really is a one of a kind. You don't see this sprouting of information like you provided everywhere, you would think we would, given the profundity of the issue involved. 
We'll get into all of that in a few minutes. But let's start by following the flow of your article from a few years ago. You open it by describing a hard turn in 2015 through 2016 from a character that comes into the story named Len Blavatnik. Now, his political contributions soared. In your description, he suddenly, out of nowhere, pumped $6.3 million into Republican political action committees. Millions went to top Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham. Could you tell us a little bit about what that episode was all about? And why, when you were writing your article, did you think that was the right place to start with, the right window for all of us into the overall pattern that was emerging around that time? Sure, Matt. For me, Bovatnik was the needle in the haystack. But he was the needle in the haystack that I wasn't even looking for. I literally found him by accident. It was early 2017. I was teaching a graduate class, MBA class on global strategy. We had been waiting to see who Trump would nominate as his new trade secretary. And when we found out that it was Wilbur Ross, I thought, okay, in class tonight, I probably should dig up some information on Ross so that the students and I can review his background. So I started sifting through the haystack if you will, which is my practice, to bring in some current information on Ross. And as I was looking through, I found a seminal piece, and I want to mention it to your Wilbur Ross comes to D.C. with an unexamined history of Russian connections. This is a piece that I still refer to, and you can see how I have marked it up. It's in dcreport.org by James S. Henry, just a, a masterpiece. And I, I started reading about Ross and the fact that he was serving as co-chair of the Bank of Cyprus with an oligarch handpicked by Putin. And I started getting a lump in my throat thinking, oh, dear God, we've Trump has appointed a guy to the cabinet that's in business with an oligarch. And I read a little further into the article and found that Victor Vexelberg, who I was familiar with because he owns a giant conglomerate in Russia that siphoned off a ton of money from the state when he was building out much of the Olympic village for the games in Sochi in 2014. So I was familiar with him, and I thought, oh, God, he's a majority owner of the Bank of Cyprus. So here we are going to have a cabinet member. Our secretary of trade is in bed with the oligarchs. Mm. So I, got, I started getting a sick feeling, and then I got to one line, and I just want to read it here to you. One line in the article, and it says... Vexelberg's longtime business partner is Lynn Blavatnik. On October 25, 2016, AI Altep Holdings, a company reportedly based in New York and owned directly or indirectly by Vexelberg's partner, Lynn Blavatnik, made a $1 million contribution to Senator Mitch McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund. Huh. 
and I stopped breathing. Wow. I was just frozen. I thought it cannot be. There is no way Mitch McConnell would have taken a million dollars from Lynn Blavatny, who owns a Russian company, Vexelberg. It just can't be. I doubted the article. I went to the computer. I went into the Federal Election Commission database. And not only did I find that, yes, Henry was correct, that the million-dollar donation was real, that a couple of weeks later, he had made a second million-dollar donation. And that's when I realized, oh, dear God, they're already in. The country was so focused on us being attacked from without through social media, and they had just formed the special counsel where Mueller was going to be investigating that. And all I could think of was, they're already in, and who's going to believe this? So that's where, when I realized we had an American conduit that is all you needed for the money to come from Russia through the American conduit into the, the PACs. And I started digging, and the more I dug, the worse it got. I can only commend to people, if you're listening to this on audio, check out the video version because we are going to make sure to layer in every step of the way some of these, it's done as a bubble diagram. And it's, we've got Blavatnik, and then we've got connection points there. And let me just zoom out for one second for a little piece of context to this connection to Wilbur Ross, Bank of Cyprus, Donald Trump, his cabinet. Because I mentioned at the top of the show that there was some focus at the time that you were writing this on the Russian attack on mm -hmm. us through our elections. And we were focused on the prong of the attack that had to do with misinformation, skullduggery, right. various ways of kind of turning our electoral process. But there is a larger context on the financial piece, the second prong that you started investigating. And we went over it with the writer Greg Oliar in our recent show. And he demonstrates, based on the work of the author Craig Unger, who's exhaustively documented this mm -hmm. in several books, that... Donald Trump started being cultivated by the KGB as an asset in the early 1980s, perhaps as early as 1977. And one thing that he was doing throughout the mid-1980s, and this continued for 30 years thereafter, was allowing the Russian mafia and Russian intelligence, and there's huge overlaps there to who became the oligarchs here, allowing them to launder money through the Trump organization, launder mm -hmm. money through real estate, through Trump Tower, by allowing shell companies to purchase properties. It essentially became, in Greg Oliar's words, a Russian laundromat. And so it's, in a way, it's very surprising to, to discover that he's appointing Wilbur Ross to a cabinet position since he was seemingly at the epicenter of another Russian laundromat for dirty money in the Bank of Cyprus. But exactly. in a way, it's not that surprising at all because yeah. this is his MO. This is Donald Trump's longstanding MO. 
Okay. I, unless yeah. you want to jump in on that, I want to go to the next bubble, but it, 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 any no, thoughts on go that? Ahead. Okay. All right. Go ahead. You take us from Blavatnik, which is the, this conduit, conduit. He's a front man who can right. give money, who can legally give money to American political campaigns. And you connect from there to Oleg Deripaska. Now, he comes into the story bigly, as Donald yes. Trump would say. Yes. He has been in the news a lot recently. He's all over the Manafort connection. He's all over, he's all over everything. He's all over the McGonagall connection. That's bad. But can you remind us all, what did we know about Deripaska when you were first writing this? You wrote the initial version in 2017. You wrote the second version in 2018. How does he tie in? with Blavatnik and this nexus of oligarchs and Paul Manafort. What was the state of play at the time? At the time, people were really focusing on Manafort. And uh, he was he was on trial, he and uh, Gates, his partner, for what they had done. And they had actually, they had actually started a private equity fund that they coaxed Deripaska into investing a lot of money. And uh, they ended up losing a lot of it. And that's what Deripaska was so angry about. And he wanted his money back. And so he wanted, Manafort was, uh, was looking for a way to pay back. And that was, the, that was what was really focused on about Deripaska. But where I think Deripaska is most important is where he links to Blavatnik. Mm -hmm. And that is that the two of them, plus Vexelberg, own together, the three of them own 69%, or they did at the time, the company called Russell, which is the second largest aluminum producer in the world. It has since come under sanctions. It was under sanctions. Then we took it out from under sanctions. But at the time, People really didn't know a lot about that company, but I thought it was essentially the, like the nucleus of the cell. It was where everything came together. It was the core because that's where Blavatnik really made his big money overseas in Russia in that huge conglomerate with those two guys. And Deripaska, as we now know, is the right-hand oligarch to Vladimir Putin. He was already in what we called the Kremlin family after he married into Boris Yeltsin's family back in the 90s. And that's why he's so important, because he takes direct orders from Putin, and he owns the company with Vatnik and Vexelberg. And the profits roll from that aluminum company and they are transferred then from there overseas to here in the States to Blavatnik's holding companies, which are called Access Industries and AI Alltech. And that's where he gave the money. He, gave, he didn't give the money in his personal name. He mm. gave the money in the names of his holding companies. It's interesting. I would have people periodically direct message me on Twitter, Twitter or email me. And we can't find this in the FEC database. We're not looking, we're not, we're looking for him. We can't find this. And I say, 
you have to look for his holding companies because that's where he gave the money. He gave it under the holding company names. So again, just to zoom out here, we have a direct connection from Vladimir Putin to Oleg Deripaska. And from Deripaska, we get to Blavatnik and Vexelberg. And so what you have here is this nest of Putin puts the oligarchs in position to essentially assume control of what used to be Soviet-owned, state-owned industries and to get mind-bendingly, disgustingly rich. And then they use that money. And yeah. what they start doing in this time frame, at least we start seeing it in this time frame. Who knows? But mm-hmm. what we start seeing is they're funneling this money directly into American politics through Republican politicians. And of course, through lots of ways that they're mucking around in the Trump campaign and with our election systems. All right. You've already, I want to, you touched on Vexelberg briefly already here. Let's just stay for one second on the Deripaska line of this for a second, because there's another name that there's a lot of Russian names that come into this. There's another name that comes in at this point, which is Konstantin Kalimnik going to flash up on screen, the FBI wanted poster for him because it's, it's pretty spectacular, but he's looped into this as well because of the connection to Manafort. We know that Kalimnik, this is according to the Senate intelligence report on this, the five volume Senate Intelligence Report, Volume 5. This is under Republicans, by the way. Republicans report this. They look into this and they say, Kalimnik is a Russian spook. He's attached to Russian intelligence. He and Deripaska meet with Manafort. They discuss a quote-unquote Ukraine peace plan, because remember, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea back in 2014. It was the first assault, military assault on Ukraine. And they discuss a peace plan, which means we get to keep everything we've taken and probably more. And Manafort, in turn, says, since I owe you a lot of money, Oleg, how about in in payment in kind, you take some of this internal Trump campaign polling data you can then use to screw around further with our elections. Wow. Did you know about this Kalimnik piece at the time you were writing this? And what was your reaction when you found out about it? I didn't, but I wasn't surprised because after looking into him, what I found was that he and Manafort go way back, way back into the 90s when the Soviet Union first collapsed. There was a lot of money that poured in to Russia and a lot of aid went over. You saw a lot of nonprofits and government-sponsored groups set up pro-democracy organizations. And they were, a lot of Americans ran those, and Kalimnik worked for one of those in Russia. And he spent a lot of time over here in D.C. In fact, I'm sorry I can't give you the site, but I pulled it up a couple of days ago. If you just Google his name in D.C., there's a picture of him in Manafort when he was a lot younger when he was over here on, it looked like to be some type of exchange program. I'm sure where he was over here, just like a little sponge collecting any kind of information he could for Russia's security service as a young agent. And so he and Manafort struck up a relationship very early and they worked together in Ukraine when they, when Manafort was working on Nico's campaign there. 
And so the fact that he used him to deliver the favor did not surprise me. And the fact that he was the one who came over with a peace plan to hand off to Manafort. And I've always, I've always wondered about the peace plan. I doubt, I don't think it was a peace plan. I'm not even sure it was really so much about Ukraine as it, it might have just been an outright wish list or demand list for what Putin wanted from Trump. It could have been applicable to Ukraine, but I, I doubt seriously, it, I wouldn't call it a peace plan. I would call it a power plan to how Putin wanted to tighten his grip on Ukraine and have it carved up even more. And he wanted, he probably wanted Trump's assistance doing that. So no, I wasn't surprised at all that Klimnik uh, appeared on the scene. It was going to have to be someone like him. And right. he's, a likely, he's a likely character. He's a conduit. He's a conduit on the Russian side. Just like I saw Blavatnik as a legal conduit on the American side, Klimnik was a legal conduit on the Russian side who could come and go and act as the courier or the conduit. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If people are wondering, what did the Russians get out of this? All kinds of, all, there, there's all kinds of proof that they got a mm -hmm. lot. There's oh, a great a CNN article titled, 37 times Trump was soft on Russia and embedded right in the middle of that during the 2016 presidential campaign around the time that this peace plan, we sound like Dr. Evil, lasers, around the time that this peace plan was being put forward from a Russian spook through Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman for Trump, to Donald Trump, lo and behold, Donald Trump says, quote, Putin did an amazing job of taking the mantle when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. He said it would probably be okay if Russia just held on to Crimea. He said the people of Crimea, from what I've heard, from whom I wonder, would rather be with Russia than where they were. And then his aides turned around and softened the Republican platform on Ukraine. There's a ton more in this article. But the point is, we see the outcome. We see the inputs. We see the outcome and the common thread here is this connection of Russian money flowing in to Republicans. Okay, continuing on, I just want to nail down yeah. a final Russian name here because it's come up several yeah. times already. Okay, we've got Blavatnik. We've got Deripaska. We just yeah. did Kalimnik. But you've invoked the name of Victor Vexelberg. Can we just, exactly. just tie off? He's a third part of this troika that involves Blavatnik or Pasca. He, he and Blavatnik go way back. 
They went to university together in Russia back in the 80s. And Nick, by the way, was born in Ukraine, actually. He was born in Odessa when, you, when Ukraine was in under the Soviet arm. So he is Ukrainian born, to be precise. But he went to college in Russia. That's where he met Vexelberg. And when in the 90s, when the process of privatization which was really just a giveaway, a corrupt giveaway of Russian industry started. They began to buy up energy companies and their, their, first, their first project together was a gas company called TNK that eventually partnered very famously with British Petroleum. And that was a huge scandal in the end where the government of Russia essentially forced BP out and forced them to sell that their half of that joint venture back to the to a state-run organization but that's a whole nother story but on the russian side the two guys who owned that company that was the partner of BP were none other than Vexelberg and Blavat and so Vexelberg, his big conglomerate in Russia is known as Renova. That, that's their conglomerate. They started together. Vexelberg is more the controller of that on the Russian side because he is a Russian citizen. Of course, he's there all the time. Levotnik now is really a dual U.S.-U.K. citizen, and that's where he mostly lives in London or New York. He just makes his money from his holdings still in those companies and acts as a conduit to bring his profits over to the UK and to the US. But Vexelberg, under that big holding company he has, one of his subsidiaries that he had at the time I wrote the story was Columbus Nova. And I may be getting ahead of you in your questioning. No, this is uh, exactly where we want to go. Okay, I'll just tease that up then. Columbus Nova. Uh, was, in fact, I still have hard copies that I printed out because I had a gut feeling when all heck broke loose. I'll keep this PG rated for my young students who might want to watch this at some point. The list that I printed out which is no longer on the internet. Everything was taken down. Wow. Listed Columbus Nova as, I'll read it here, the U.S.-based investment arm of Renova Group. And so he, it, he sent money over to Columbus Nova that was then invested in U.S. You know, real estate holdings or other capital investments, who knows what. But it was run by a cousin of his, Andrew Intrader. And that's the place. That's the place we've got to go because Intrader, that's the place we've got to go. That's the place we got because <laughs> Intrader starts to really thicken the plot here. So again, yeah. not to keep going back. This is the way I write. I have to keep going back over what I've already written. Otherwise, I lose the thread. And I know right. that a tough 
it's like one of those Russian nesting dolls, right? Like it is. inside yeah, each one, there's another shadowy figure. There's another. There's and they another. All, you have to keep them. But just to simplify this, you've got this, you've got this nest of oligarchs. When we say oligarchs, we really mean mafiosos. We really mean yeah. corrupt, yeah. dirty figures who made a power play to take over state-run enterprises and just grab the money. They grab all this money and they start mysteriously at the same time that at a state level, Putin is directing a, an attack on American elections in this 2015-2016 period. His right-hand man among this nest of oligarchs is funneling all this money on the other side. All right. Now, you do, oh, you go, please. Yeah, I want to just point out that as we move to discuss intrigue, let's note that like Blavatnik, where we use the term conduit. Right. Intrader also represents a conduit because he's an American. He receives money from Russia legally, and he can legally do what he wants with the money here on the American side. So I see him in much the same vein as I see Blavatnik. And what's really fascinating to me is how unintentionally revealing these people are of themselves. They're operating with only the thinnest patina of cover here. Yeah. Columbus Nova in Traders Company, remember, in Trader Vecklesburg frontman, right? Vecklesburg's Vecklesburg's cousin. Yeah. They say that they are the American investment arm for Renova. They are literally saying the quiet part out loud. We're taking this corrupt Russian money and we're investing it here in America. That's pretty, pretty blatant. Not to mention- Well, saying it now. Right. I They're you. not saying it now. What, yeah, the, we the, really the regret web, now that the, we've been caught. Yeah, their yeah. website is white clean. You can't find any listing of their subsidiaries. And when another big event blew up, they wouldn't even admit that Columbus Nova was an investment arm. All right. But if you're going to name yeah. your company in America something that's yeah. the front for foreign money to come colonize America, how about not naming it New Columbus, basically? Give away much there? All right. Anyway. Yeah, right. exactly. Let's talk in trader for a second. Okay. Trader, same darn pattern here in this 2017 period. It was a little later. So out of nowhere, 2016, 2017, suddenly he develops a deep passion for Republicans. He loves Republicans. He loves yeah. We've talked about the connection yeah. here. I want to hit you with, there's so many angles here. I'm going to let you, this is a blue platter of corruption. I'm going <laughs> to let you pick. Okay. Here's number one. This is one that I did a little legwork on much like you did, but probably not as well. So if you, this is available, go to open secrets or go directly to the FEC website, look up Andrew Intrader. There are 86 contributions that you find there of public record a public record. They all go to Republicans. They all suddenly sprout in this time frame. One exception. He makes a series of contributions to one Democrat, Tulsi Gabbard, 
who you may recall, Hillary Clinton accused of being a Russian <laughs> asset, and now spends most of her time spewing anti-Ukraine propaganda on Fox. Let me just let me just list these here, and then you start to pick. Another place that Intrader shows up is he is the major financial benefactor of George Santos. Why? Okay, that that's one. Here's one for you that I think I'm going to stump you on. If you search for Columbus Nova, which you had the wit to do, you, you actually looked at companies and holding companies, you find them in exactly one listing that you can find through Open Secrets, just one. They are connected to another, we mentioned George Santos. Back in 2014, they suddenly give a whole bunch of dark money to another random Republican, should have been an also-ran, was an also-ran candidate, out of nowhere. It's linked to Intrader. It's this money bomb. It's totally weird. Don't know what's up with that. And then we've got this other fascinating Intrader piece, which is he paid Michael Cohen, the Trump fixer, $500,000 and proceeded in the course of one year to trade 1,000 text messages with him. I am very happily married, and I don't believe that I've <laughs> traded a thousand text messages with my wife in the span of one year, even though we're prolific texters. I could go on with this stuff, but Ruth, why don't you choose from the poop platter? Okay. What sparks your interest here? Obviously, to start with, he grabbed my interest, as I said before, as a possible conduit for Vexelberg. And he did give 250000 to Trump's inaugural. And he and Vexelberg attended Trump's inaugural. There are pictures of them there, which in hindsight is amazing that they would have the gall to, to show up and be photographed at the inaugural. But at that point, they hadn't been revealed they hadn't been, Mueller hadn't gotten to them yet. He hadn't stopped Vexelberg's plane coming in and searched him and questioned him about political contributions. None of that had really happened. So you zoom forward to the Santos. I don't know what's up with that. I have done a little digging. I can't find anything. My guess is Maybe he's trying to get his toe back in the door to pry open a way, maybe an ac some access to information, documents, just to have ex access to inside information and know what's going on. He probably didn't expect Santos to be a complete fiasco like he has been when he poured that money into him. So I think Santos did a sales job on him like he did everybody else. Now, uh, Michael Cohen, the 500,000, you know, people have speculated that money was to pay back the money used that went to Stormy Daniels to pay her off, maybe so. My thinking is that may have been more like an advance payment that was going to go to Mr. Trump as Cohen awfully said, awful, often says that to, to prime him, if you will, for some favors that Vexelberg was going to ask on behalf of Putin, that because there, there was a channel there 
Vexelberg could go directly to Putin. You see a lot of photos of the two of them meeting. He could communicate then to his cousin, who could then communicate, obviously, quite often with Cohen, who could then communicate directly to President Trump. I think it was just prepayment, if you will, on favors that were to be asked. That's just my gut feeling. It is fascinating in retrospect. Uh, of all of those, the one I would choose from the poop platter is, I don't know, maybe the crab rangoon of all of this, is that first piece of the blatant, the flagrant, showing up at the inauguration yeah. together. Like Vexelberg actually just showing up. It's like, we're not even, it we're camouflaging this operation in the obviousness of it. Look, if we're here at the, this must all be innocent because we're not even bothering to try to hide it. It's just really does boggle the mind. But I leave all of this connection. Again, this is a conduit. This is Russian money flowing from Vexelberg and Blavatnik and Deripaska, mm -hmm. kind of like the Putin cronies, directly through in-trade and to Republicans. And I, it's just, I guess I am left with more questions than I can answer myself about like the why of all this and the obviousness of all of it. Let's just quickly, you bring in a couple of other names. I don't want to take too much time on them because we've already mm -hmm. hit people with a lot of names, but in your article, I just, I think they, they do come up and I want people to at least understand for context. There's Alexander Shusterovich, Simon Kooks, is his yeah. name really Kooks? All right, there you go. Yeah, yeah. But it's like having trader in your name. Now you've got kooks in your name. This is great. What's just quickly, what's up with them? Yeah, I threw them in simply because they turned up in the FEC database. They're Russian Americans. And kooks has direct ties back to Vexelberg and Blavatnik because that TNK energy company that I mentioned that had the partner, the joint venture with BP. He was the CEO of that. They tapped him and brought him in as CEO. So he he took orders from Vexelberg. So he he's very closely tied to the two of them. And he gave what he gave, let's see, 283,000, much of it to the Trump Victory Fund. Uh, and he really hadn't had much of in donating history until 2016. A couple of thousand bucks. And then boom. $283,000 out of nowhere, just going from, from zero to 283. That's quite a jump. It also begs the other side of the question, which you explicitly pose in your article, because you sum up in this 2015 to 2016 period, Blavatnik, yeah. Intrader, Shusterovich, and Kooks, the four individuals that you track who are American and eligible to legally make campaign contributions to American political candidates, they make $10.4 million in contributions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a decent amount of money. And, and Shostorovich, he gave a million out of just boom, out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. And they're tied yeah. into these, to these oligarchs, particularly Vexelberg. So here's the other side of the coin. Maybe it's the best question of the whole thing. Why did these Republican PACs and these Trump-controlled funds take their money. They must have known. Why exactly. did they say yes? That's the question 
that hung over my whole article. And I don't have an answer. It haunted me. It still haunts me. I think it haunts all of us to know how close the GOP, so many of them are, to these people. That they took the money. I gave the example of, who was it? It was Sorovich who tried to give money to the Bush campaign. And the RNC, they refused it back in 2000. They said, no, we're not going to take your money because you're too closely tied to the Russian government. Why didn't these GOP PACs do that in the 2015-2016 presidential race? That's what they should have done. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It does boggle the mind. It does does boggle boggle the the mind. mind. Again, it's the sort of, maybe it was the hiding in plain sight nature of it. Mm -hmm. It was the, maybe they thought, I don't know. But part of the reason that I set this up as a two-pronged thing up at the top is that really was very important for understanding the context. Even though we all vaguely remember these things, it's hard to bring our minds back to this time period. The money side wasn't obvious. It wasn't on the surface. The Russian ties were, and if you go back and I've got the clips and I'm putting them in other videos, but the questions about the Russia ties were in the news. They weren't being heavily reported, but the whole idea that Trump might be tacitly controlled by Russia and that Republicans were basically falling under the sway of yes. Vladimir Putin. This was a thing. Hillary Clinton was talking about this. And so, the, and then of course you have the very public hacking of the DNC, the WikiLeaks. Mueller investigation had already started. He had been appointed. We all knew that they had attacked us through social media. The whole country was well aware of it. All the Congress was aware of that. And it was just a, it was a known, I don't know, I don't know. It's just, all I can say is it haunts me. And I'll say, Matt, and this is important to point out, it's not just the Republicans. A lot of Democrats took money from Blavatnik. Now, not millions, but, and since this whole thing blew up, He has gone back to his bipartisan, evenly giving, I think, personally, to hide his tracks or give the image of being not favoring one party over the other. Because he had an even very low dollar bipartisan, even giving history up until 2016. He never gave more than a couple of hundred thousand dollars pretty evenly. And then just out of nowhere, it exploded into the millions all to the GOP. And since his giving has gone back to the pattern it was, there are Democrats taking this money too. It's a systemic problem that nobody's talking about. Although I think, and that is very fair to say, that is a very, it's an important point. Less people think that we don't know the whys and wherefores of all of this and sort of the strategy behind it, whether some of it is track covering and some of it is what we do know is that there was this two pronged assault and clearly, surely they are linked. And so I think it's both fair to say that it is on Democrats who are taking money from these sources 
to say no. And yeah. the, the, if we're going to criticize Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and that whole group for saying yes to the money, we need to equally in the same breath criticize the Democrats. Yes. But at the same time, clearly the infiltration effort is almost exclusively through the Republican Party. And if you look at the, the giving pattern from Andrew Intrader for a second, his yeah. first on record publicly available contribution is 2017, $29,000 to the Republican National Committee. What was mm -hmm. happening at the time? Mueller investigation, post Comey firing. This is not exactly a, th this is not a source that the, that the Republican National Committee, while Donald Trump was in his first six months of his presidency, should this is not a source they should have been taking money from. So no. then he goes quiet for a few years. His next set of contributions are 2020, Tulsi Gabbard. We've already touched on, we don't know what the heck she was up to and what we know what the heck she's up to now. And then every single one of the remaining 84, 80, 83 contributions are since 2020. And they all go to top Republicans. It's a who's who. It's Tim Scott, Martha McSally, George Santos, Steve Scalise, Cory Gardner, John James, Lindsey Graham. I could go on and on through this. And he makes a, a modest effort. He lists his employer as Sparrow Capital, not yeah. as Columbus Nova. He certainly doesn't say, hey, this is Russian money. He's active. He's doing this. Again, we can move on, but it does beggar the imagination. All of this stuff was well out in the open at this point. Why all of these folks are saying yes, and they're almost exclusively Republicans from this source. Let me ask another major question that hangs over this. Why am I talking to you? And this in the best possible way, because you are an expert on the Russian and Ukrainian economies, these figures, the ultimate money sources, you're obviously an excellent sleuth. And at the same time, there are, there's like, investigative reporters in America who are supposed to be doing this full-time as they're living. And I just, you're not an investigative reporter. With all of this information being public record, you could find it. I could find some of it. Why weren't we hearing more of this nonstop from journalists? That's a great question, Matt. It's a great question. And it drove me crazy, I'll have to tell you. Because in early 2017, when I found that needle in the haystack, I thought, okay, next week, I'm going to turn on the TV and, and I'm going to hear about this. And I didn't. And I waited. I said, okay, it'll be next week. I'll hear about it. And I thought, okay, next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see it in the Washington Post or New York Times. And, and I didn't. And, then, and I was talking to my wife about it. She's, you need to write it. And I was like, I can't write it. I'm sure it's going to come out. I think there's three reasons. First of all, if, I don't know if you've heard of something called confirmation bias. The old, people don't see what they don't expect to see. It's too bizarre. It's beyond nobody could expect. Nobody expected. We were already being attacked from outside. Who could imagine that they had already worked their way in 
through porous holes in our system that they were mm. already on the inside. It just, there was no cognitive frame of reference in anybody's head to see this, except me, because I have been watching the Russians for 30 years in an academic sense mm. and doing research. And I, when the moment that the news came out in 2016 that they had stolen that the emails from the DNC. I knew they were in there and I thought, oh God, this is, they're going to be, the Russians are, they've got their hands in this. And in other words, what you imagine they could do. It, it's, and Number one, I think people just didn't expect it. It was beyond what they could dream, so they just didn't see it. Secondly, is Trump was like a dog chasing a ball. He would take the ball out and throw it in one direction, and the press would all run that way. And before they could get to the ball, he'd take another ball and throw it that way, and then they'd all run after that. And then the next day, he'd announce that he'd gotten a love letter from shorty over in North Korea, he'd throw it that way. They were so busy chasing the balls that Trump was throwing in every different direction. They were like the dog going nuts in the backyard. They couldn't keep up with all the balls he was throwing. And honestly, I think he was doing it on purpose. I think that was his, he learned that technique, I believe. <laughs> from Vladimir Putin to to keep them off his trail and it worked and I finally decided like you call out the reserve when the military needs help I felt okay the real journalists are so overwhelmed I need to step up as a reservist and just jump in there and write this because they're never going to get through it and it's too big of a picture for them to see. And I think I was right after I wrote it. In fact, I know it because after I wrote it, I had, and I won't say who, but I had reporters from CN, of the Washington Post, Radio Free Europe, Vice News. I could go on. I kept a list. Call me and say, Dr. May, could I just talk to you, you know, about your piece and have some questions? I'm trying to get my head wrapped around it. I need to write. I've got something to write. And I just can't get all these characters straight. Never had to go writing about something in this context. And it was just overwhelming. I'm really happy that I could finally take 30 years of boring academic writing that nobody reads and put it to use some way to maybe serve my country. That's how I looked at it. I think it. you've done something invaluable here. And I look, I'm in a position where I don't produce original research the way you do in an academic position. But what I try to do on this show is give people some context and connect some dots and I think that's extremely valuable because it's something yeah. that the news media fails to do. It's the thing that they struggle to do the most is, you know, their heads down under deadline with editors on their butts, 
and they're yeah. trying to just deliver the story and stepping back it almost feels contrary to the news reporter's mission because it seems to be editorial in nature. You step back and you say, don't we realize that all of this connects together? So it would not have taken, it would not have taken a major effort to say, hey folks, have we ever thought about the fact that Donald Trump was bankrupt and was bailed out with a $4 billion investment from yeah. Bayrock Capital? And so we know that he was owned lock, stock, and barrel at that point explicitly by Russian money. Even going back to, again, I mentioned the connection at the top of the show. Why was the Trump organization going out of its way in the 1980s to buy hundreds and hundreds of television sets from an electronics store that the FBI was investigating as a known hub of Russian intelligence and KGB activity? Why was that? Why was he hanging out there? What was up with that? These connections are there to be made. And this is all just a roundabout way of saying, yeah. I think what you've provided here is invaluable. And let's close out on this because I think this dot connection exercise naturally leads me to the final thought of all of this, which is what Arthur Conan Doyle would have called the dog that didn't bark or what the departed <laughs> Don Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. I actually quote that all the time, even though I thought it was a very tangled little recitation he gave. It is a little weird to me that after seeing this profusion, this mushrooming out of the muck of Russian money popping up, mostly among Republicans and Donald Trump, and this very overt interference in our elections, things went eerily quiet. Intrader suddenly pops up again starting in 2020. He gives a bunch of money to Santos. But we're not seeing these same financial patterns that you unearthed. At the same time, there's a lot going on that has this eerie tip of the iceberg quality to it. There's Evgeny Prigozhin, who owns the Wagner Group, which is the tip of the spear of the Russian war effort in Ukraine. He, they're, they're a private paramilitary group committing atrocities in Ukraine and around the world. Another Putin right-hand man. He's also <laughs> the oligarch who bragged right after the 2022 midterms about Russia's ongoing efforts to interfere in U.S. elections. He yeah. is the man responsible for that. That's a weird connection. And then we have this Charles McGonigal piece. Charles McGonigal, the chief FBI New York field office person in charge of counterintelligence having to do with Russia, in charge of trying to put a stop to this stuff, goes and works for Oleg Deripaska. And it just spurs this question of what don't we know? What don't we know? What else is going on? It's alleged in the indictment that he only started working for Deripaska after he left the FBI. Are we sure? What about his colleagues in the FBI field office who apparently were responsible for putting so much pressure on James Comey that he leaked, that he announced that he was reopening the investigation into Clinton's emails? And we know that is a primary reason that she lost the election. Mm -hmm. Comey leaking that under duress from these other field agents. What did that nest of FBI agents in New York have to do with? this false 
exculpatory news article published in the New York Times, October 31st, 2016, a week before the election, with a headline that seemed to give Trump a clean bill of health, saying, investigating Donald Trump, FBI sees no clear link to Russia. Are you, I'm sorry for your students, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> After everything we've just gone through, no clear link to Russia, FBI? Are you kidding me? And okay, that was the world's longest question. Much of it was not actually a question. You would grade me with a D if I had formulated a question like that in your class, Dr. May. But yeah, promise. Here, here I'll turn it into a question <laughs> to you. How worried are you about the stuff we don't know? You found all of these legal contributions, but there's a whole other conduit of money in America, dark money that we can't track. I had U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on the show saying explicitly that he, with all of his investigatory powers, is very worried about how much dark money is flowing into Republican campaigns and right-wing groups that are funding efforts to put these right-wing nutsos on the Supreme Court. And he's worried that it's all linked to Russia. And we can't prove it because it's dark money. Yeah. It, how worried are you about what we don't see about the unknown unknowns. I have great admiration for Senator Whitehouse, and I am equally worried about the dark money flowing into GOP, and I don't see any way to stop it, and that's that scares me. As far as the Russia link, I have to think that after all the blow-up, the sanctions, the revelations of Trump's misconduct that now, hopefully, the DOJ is looking into a lot of this. But we've taken so much wealth from the oligarchs since the war in Ukraine started. We've confiscated so much of their property along with our allies in Europe. I think they're laying pretty low. If I think they're afraid of losing everything. Honestly, afraid Putin's going to lose. They all are really hoping that he'll get himself out of this war he's gotten himself into because they see that it's destroying Russia's economy. It's destroying their, their ways, their means of increasing their wealth, of their credibility on a global scale. They really wish he'd get the hell out of there. But they can't tell him and live. You see the few who have either, there's two ways. They either have a heart attack in their hotel room or they end up off a balcony. Those are the two ways that he gets rid of oligarchs who say anything against him. And so right now, I'm not so worried about what they're doing because I feel like they're scared. And I think as long as the war in Ukraine is underway, I think Putin is mostly focused on that. I don't think he has a lot of band, a whole lot of bandwidth left over to focus on interference. He same thing with Prigozhin. He was the, uh, the daddy of the internet farm in in Saint Petersburg that was doing all of the social media hacking through Facebook. 
where Mueller did issued the indictment back in 2018. I wrote another article in Dallas Morning News about that when he issued that indictment against that internet farm. And so right now, I'm not so worried about the money coming in from the outside because I feel like the Blatniks, the Vexelbergs, and even Deripaska know that the spotlight is on them. They are under, they're worried about what they're going to lose from the Putin side and they're under sanctions from the U.S. side. So they're trying to be on their best behavior. I'm more worried about the money coming in from the U.S. side, the Mm. dark money with evil intent that Dr. Not Dr. Senator Whitehouse talked about. It's, I hope you're right. I certainly defer to your expertise. And even if the reasons behind it are ultimately tragic, because they have to do with the war in Ukraine, I do hope you're right that the combination of U.S. sanctions and economic catastrophe, and unfortunately, the war catastrophe, is tamping down a lot of this profusion of, I don't know how else to say it, Russian assault on us. that we saw in this time frame. And maybe McGonagall, maybe he'll end up being a bookend on all of it. And I just think that, first of all, we can't allow ourselves to say, we caught McGonagall, that's it. I think Craig Unger is right to say, we need to re-examine what went on there Mm -hmm. because it, it begins to feel like a clock chiming for a 13th time. It's not only strange in itself, it calls everything else that underlies it into question. And if we see this kind of infiltration of the highest levels of law enforcement by the Russians and the highest levels of the Republican Party and our government leadership by the Russians, we have to wonder if we've caught all of the connections and we stamp them out. If there's a cancer, you got to get all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, it does raise the question going forward of we have another election upon us in a year. And a lot of these figures that have benefited from the Russian connection are still with us and or are trying to come back. And we have to be extremely vigilant about what they're going to be up to in the future. But on that note, that's, I guess, semi semi disquieting, maybe hopeful. Dr. Ruth May, thank you so much for doing this work, which I think is incredibly valuable for bringing all of this explanation to our viewers and our listeners. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me, Matt.